BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. You know, we, we are, I was, I was uh, off last week. Uh, my colleague, uh, Josh Kovensky, uh, subbed in for me and uh, along with, along with Kate, my co-host. And obviously a lot has happened over the last week. You could, I guess you could kind of say that over most of the last month or so. But, you know, there's something, something that occurred to me back. I don't remember what sort of foreign policy challenge that it was during the Obama administration. But Obama got a lot of grief for this phrase. I don't know if he used it or if one of his advisors used it about him, but this phrase leading from behind, right? And it became like, it was almost like a catchphrase among Republicans, you know, leading from behind, like, oh, leading from behind. That's not how you lead. You lead from the front. And, um, I have been thinking uh, a number of times in recent days, I'm really glad Joe Biden's president. I'm really glad Joe Biden's president. And, you know, uh, I'm certainly glad that Joe Biden is president compared to Donald Trump being president. But it's not just that. Um, There's, for decades, for generations, American presidents have been preparing for, have been fretting about have been waiting for the big nuclear backdrop land war in Europe. That has been in the cards for as long as the vast majority of us have even been alive. And Joe Biden drew that card. Now, I I don't know how this is going to work out, but I am highly, highly confident that it is not going to spin out of control because Joe Biden does some stupid thing or some rash thing or something that is getting pushed forward by the very understandable emotions of the moment or getting, you know, wrong-footed by either adversaries or allies. I'm 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 really confident of that. And that is you have to you have to take your good feelings where you can these days. And that's a good feeling. More broadly though, There are a number of things that Biden has done, if you're watching closely, where he has de-emphasized his own political interests in favor of the national interests. So one example of that is, you know, what is what is very quite likely going to really get Democrats, you know, kind of crushed in the midterms is kind of everything going on, but inflation. Inflation that is basically driven by the 
you know, global impacts of the pandemic. Um, I know there's an ongoing kind of, you know, uh, debate how much the early 2021 stimulus package fed into that because you have a lot of demand and a lot of shortages in the economy and then you push a lot of extra cash. Probably has some role. I'm not an economist. I don't know exactly. But these things are basically, you know, but it's not like this is only happening in the United States. This is a global thing. It's hurting the Democrats a lot. The last thing they possibly needed was a big price shock in energy costs. That's obvious. So they have approached this in a way that has really been very damaging to the Democrats' near-term, maybe medium-term political interests. Another thing is that Joe Biden has been relatively unprominent during this crisis. He's generally not the one who's out there announcing the new sanctions, the new arms things and stuff like that. He's, 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 you know, he's been out there. He's announced we're doing this, we're doing that. But he has allowed, encouraged uh, other NATO leaders, the Germans, uh, the French, certainly the sort of, for lack of a better word, frontline states, Poland, uh, the Baltic states, etc., to kind of take the lead here. Now, on a domestic front, I hear people saying sometimes, hey, everything's going on. Why aren't, why aren't I hearing from Joe Biden every day? Well, there's a really good reason. To the extent this is some, you know, kind of mano a mano, Putin versus Biden, you know, kind of dick swinging match, to put it crudely, that's not, that's not helpful for kind of keeping this on track. And, and if you look at sort of globally, globally in both senses of the word, what has put NATO, put the United States, put Ukraine in as good a, you know, diplomatic military position as they are, is that there has been no daylight within NATO, within the EU, within most of the world on how this crisis is being addressed. Usually how these things work is the U.S. says X, Y, and Z, and the Europeans are like, well, okay, kind of, yeah, let's not get too out of, you know, let's not overdo it, blah, 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 blah. He has put his own personal and his party's political interests lower than getting a good result for the country and kind of for the world. So I wanted to mention that. Because I think that is something, you know, it, it, it's kind of one of these things. There's so many ways this kind of thing can go badly. There's so many ways to fall off this tightrope. And when you don't fall, people kind of, they're not, they're not looking down. And there's so far to fall. And there's so many ways you can fall off. And uh, frankly, I am just really, really impressed. Now, you know. Josh Marshall's impressed with Joe Biden, you know, kind of News 11. I'm not saying, you know, maybe that's not shocking at some level. But he and his team have handled this very well. It was not a given that you would have this kind of unified response. Not at all. Now, some of that certainly, a good deal of it, is that a lot of countries in Europe suddenly saw what seemed theoretical becoming like very real. Certainly, the the new NATO states, you know, relatively new NATO states, Poland, the Baltic states, um, etc. But not just those. You have a lot of ground that was laid ahead of time. A lot of this was done through the U.S. taking the lead, and then it kind of built on itself. So, anyway, 
that's what I wanted to say. And that is, I think that's kind of my big takeaway at, at, the, uh, at the moment. Let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee. You got hooked on $6 iced oat lattes and $5 nitro cold brews. It happens to the best of us. But a few months and a few hundred bucks later, you're ready to become your own barista. Making cold brew at home isn't rocket science, but it is messy. Not to mention the need for grinders, strainers, unitasker, brewing containers. I'm not even sure what that is. If you want to make cold brew at home, the easy way, order a Grady's Cold Brew Kit. It's a simple and space-efficient way to make a week's worth of coffee without the mess. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so that with my we, we got started with my praise poem for Joe Biden <laughs> um, for uh, keeping the world on track and, uh, you know, letting letting others take the spotlight because that kind of is in everybody's interest. So what else are we going to talk about today, Kate? So shortly before we started recording, um, Ukrainian President Zelensky gave a virtual address to members of Congress. He's kind of been on, you know, a bit of a media tour with Western nations of late. You know, he he recently talked to the UK and the Canadian parliaments as well. Um, He's the ultimate work from home guy. He really is. Yeah, right. He's the king of Zoom. Yeah. 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 Um, So from those previous addresses, I think people kind of had hints at what he was going to say. He's been appealing to countries' personal senses of freedom and, you know, the struggle for democracy, oftentimes kind of citing banner events um, in the country's history. And then kind of doing a combination of, you know, we thank you for all your help, for standing in solidarity of us, and here's the other stuff that we need. So we kind of had a blueprint coming in, and then we had all the members of Congress packed into this, like, big, noisy auditorium. There's a screen at the front. Um, You know, his face comes up. He's wearing the same kind of, like, army green T-shirt he's been wearing for kind of the length of the you know, I, maybe he's got multiple. Maybe it's not the same one. I was thinking, hopefully it's not the same one, right? But yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, uh, uh, earlier this morning, like if they come out of this in one piece, the guy is never going to wear a button down again. Totally. He'll be giving his like, you know, his, his if he gets reelected, his inauguration thing in, a, in, a, in an olive drab, you know, yep. kind of, you know, cut middle-aged man, you know, t-shirt, <laughs> olive drab t-shirt. So. Well, I mean, that's actually a tweet along those lines has been kind of awarded the worst take of Zelensky's speech because I don't even know who was, but someone was like, you know, couldn't he at the very least wear a suit and not show disrespect towards Congress and who the United said that? States? Is that really a thing? Yeah. It's all over Twitter. I didn't recognize the guy's name. Oh my God. Um, he must've been like deluged. Yeah, he was. He was. <laughs> so anyway, you know, he Rain comes up. The it's, kind of, yeah. it's the same scene we've been seeing, you know, where he looks pale. I mean, he's got shadows under his eyes. It, it all kind of, you know, I don't mean to say that it's artifice, but it all definitely kind of works for for his pitch and, and the figure that he's cut on the national stage um, or the global stage. So, you know, he got up, he, the most of his speech was given through a translator, which I actually, to me, you know, putting on a pundit hat for a minute, like kind of blunted the impact a bit. And it was hard to tell if there was a lot of, stuttering and, you know, going back mid-sentence and the kind of 
You mean the translator was? Yeah. Okay. But I couldn't tell if that was because of the translator or because that's how he was delivering it. It had a lot of the hallmarks of um, an unscripted address, you know, how normal people talk. But then it was also delivered in someone else's voice. And it made it even, you know, I was live blogging it for us. It made it a little hard for me to follow at times because some of the sentences were, um, you know, a bit fragmented or tangential off something else. But then we get to the video, which I think was probably like the emotional crescendo of the speech. It starts out with, um, you know, children kind of like skipping around in Ukraine and, and signs of people being happy and hanging out in Ukraine. And then it transitions into scenes from the ground amid the invasion. And it was very graphic. I mean, there were bodies on the ground and amputated limbs and, you know, kids with blood on their face. To understand. So he he's giving a sort of what seems to be kind of like a semi ad lib speech that's mm-hmm. being translated in real time. Yep. And at a certain point, he kind of does a video presentation, for lack yep. of a better word. Got exactly. It. Okay. So the screen switches over to this video, you know, which has kind of a stirring string orchestral score behind it. And shows just really kind of gruesome images that are gruesome enough that I think after the speech, CNN had anger. So I had to kind of come on and be like, we apologize for not being able to give you warning that this was graphic. So the video ended and then Zelensky's back up on the screen. And at this point, he switches to English and delivers the last few lines of the speech himself. And that I found to be incredibly powerful because he also kind of switched the address from being to Congress slash America and redirected it to just President Biden and, you know, said basically, you know, you're the to be a world leader, you know, you have to be the leader in peace, kind of just making this appeal that, you know, you're this really, really important person in the, in on the world stage and in this conflict and kind of how you act is really important. And then ended and there was like, you know, a bunch of kind of standing ovations and glory to Ukraines and and all that. But that was the sum of it. And I think the kind of big thing that, you know, I, the Beltway press, I don't really know how else to refer to them, but, you know, the politicos and such, were coming into this speech with a very kind of beating the drums of war attitude. Like all of their kind of content about this speech was about the no-fly zone. And almost, you know, in a way that was tiptoeing up to the line of cheering for the no-fly zone, because I think, for a lot of reasons, but because it adds drama to this speech, right? I mean, it, it gives it stakes if it's about Zelensky coming in and asking for something that Biden can't, won't do. Um, but in the speech, Zelensky, he asked for the no-fly. And then he said, And if that's not possible, here's the other stuff that we want, you know, kind of built into this speech off ramps of other things they could do. Um, Yeah, it's it's like, you know, when you're in a salary negotiation, (laughs) no one, you know, you you don't propose where you want to end up. Right. right? Because you're a chump if you and, and, you know, it's funny. One of the things I've because everybody, you know, everybody loves Zelensky now. Mm -hmm. And and that is for really good reason. And, and the reason he is able to do all the, you know, stirring speeches and kind of, you know, kind of pound his chest about democracy and show a film and all that stuff is that he's there. And he's not just like one person in Kiev. I don't know 
if it's as much the case as it was two and a half weeks ago. But I guarantee you part of the plan was let's get snipers in there and let's kill him because once he's dead, the whole thing's going to fall apart. So this isn't like a theoretical thing. I mean, I and I know I'm not telling you that, Kate, mm-hmm. but I mean, he's put his, you know, put his life on the line. No one can take that away from him. And so people have it can be challenging to reconcile, well, if, if it's definitely crazy to do, you know, to try, have NATO come in and do a no-fly zone, why is he asking for it? And, and, you know, maybe it is a good idea. Well, of course he's going to ask for it. His country's getting mauled. I'm sure he, you know, he's basically asking for us to intervene militarily. And why wouldn't he? he it's, it's his country and thousands of people are being killed. Of course he's going to ask for it. Why wouldn't he ask for it? That doesn't mean we should do it. Mm-hmm. People are sitting in different places, and you know, so there's nothing to reconcile, right? Uh, of course, he is. We're we're in different places, so anyway. Yeah, and I do think a lot of members, kind of on both sides, really did make comments to that effect, saying things like, you know, it would be negligent for him not to ask for everything. That doesn't mean that the United States has to deliver on everything. It's like you say, two different seats. And it is kind of funny how coming out of the speech, Republicans and Democrats just like sounded pretty similar. You know, they basically everyone is like, yeah, we're not doing the no-fly zone. That's an invitation to start World War III kind of thing. And then being like, I support kind of giving them everything we can, you know, without escalating the conflict and potentially drawing in the United States. Um, Which is just... It's interesting because I really think in some ways it's kind of set the right wing media ecosystem back on its heels a little bit because there's not a clear bifurcation. There's not really a clear point at which they can grasp onto and be like, this is Biden's enormous mistake because pretty much everyone's on the same page about things. And that just kind of leaves you with just the pro-Putin contingent, which even that has been a, a bit cowed since the invasion started. And, and we're going to get into some of the kind of conspiracy theorizing that's had to plug that hole. <laughs> but right. it is a, it's a weird spot to be in just politically. We, we've seen almost nothing so far that, you know, the Republicans can't find an issue to be against the Democrats with on, on whatever policy topic we're talking about. And here's one where both parties really are quite aligned. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly been, and I think there continues to be a lot of Republicans. Oh, you know, he's not, he's not standing up to Putin. He's, mm-hmm. he's giving away the store to Putin. And I think they'll continue to do that. Yep. Um, and I suspect that if there is a some sort of diplomatic settlement, they'll say it was caving in, it's Neville Chamberlain, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, not that there's a very high standard for internal logic to Republican critiques, but it just doesn't pass the laugh test. You know, you got an out, you got a former president who like friggin' love this guy <laughs> and actually tried to, you know, continually tried to screw over Ukraine, basically, in Russia's fate. I mean, it just, it doesn't pass the laugh test. And even, you know, you've got, you, you've clearly got, you know, Tucker Carlson out there, like in full bio lab, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for Russia mode. But even he seems, I mean, not that I watch all of Fox News or these days, barely any, but even he seems pretty isolated within the sort of the Fox mm-hmm. News ecosystem. So, 
you know, and I, one broader thing, and this is this is a very complex history, but one aspect of American politics over the last thirty years or so during my adult lifetime is that suddenly there there did not seem to be a lot of stakes. It was different from the Cold War when you're like, okay, well, are we going to have nuclear war? Are we going to have, you know, all, all these kind of things suddenly kind of like you can just kind of goof around with everything, right? And I think one of the things what you see is this doesn't seem like goofing around. This is like, you know, we've got a big hot war in Europe. We've got NATO, you know, NATO armed forces right up against, you know, right up near it. We've got these sanctions that are, that are I, you know, it's, it's one of the under, I don't think people quite understand. The Russian stock market has been closed since like the second day of this war. I think it started over the weekend and it was closed over the weekend. They never opened it again or something like that. <laughs> we, we've crushed this economy. I mean, by any reasonable standard, that this is like an act of war. Basically, it's not technically considered that, I guess, but like... <laughs> This is serious stuff. And I think at some level, you momentarily kind of, you know, that that's what you're seeing. And, and, and going back to my kind of introduction, I think it's just objectively speaking, within the context of what the vast majority of Americans and certainly the US foreign policy elite think, just objectively, Biden's done a pretty good job. It's pretty hard to hit him from you haven't done enough, considering we are pouring weapons into that country. And we have, like I said, basically crippled the Russian economy. And, you know, can you hit him from the other side? Kind of like, oh, we really should declare war in Russia. Why aren't you declaring war in Russia? Like, that's, that's a tough sell. Mm -hmm. So I think that's yeah. a lot of what we're seeing. I think my favorite moment in this kind of uh, Republican, you know, flailing to, to land on a good attack line was, I don't know if you saw this, but um, Kevin McCarthy did some network hit where he said that Biden isn't standing up for Putin and this like kind of <laughs> wonderful Freudian slip. And then I guess his staff cleaned up afterwards and was like, no, 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 to Putin, to Putin. Uh, well, you know, there's there, there's that other thing where, you know, they, they did a, uh, the White House did a push of saying, hey, inflation, thank you, Vladimir Putin. This mm -hmm. is better, which you know, kind of, price hike. Hashtag. Yeah, the, you know, yeah, exactly. So, so you know, it's it's there's certainly some truth in it. This this new rush, but obviously they're trying to re you know any 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 future discussion of inflation, we're going to say Vladimir Putin. Um, so it's a little little artfulness there. And uh, so Kevin McCarthy had this tweet, and I'm sure they also had a press release, and I'm sure he said it in other venues, saying, "Don't blame Putin." Is Joe Biden's inflation, not oh, Putin's inflation. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> that's an awkward place to be. Yep. <laughs> you know, you're kind of standing up. Don't, you know, remember that whole kind of Britney Spears thing? Leave Britney <laughs> alone. You know, it's like, leave Putin alone. Don't blame him. And focus you know. on our real enemy, the president yes, exactly. of the United States. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get into the biolab stuff a little bit, which I think. I think would have happened kind of regardless of where the Republican Party is on this, just because our conspiracy theory machinery is like pretty well oiled by this point. But it has kind of had to balloon into the gap of no real kind of coalesced point 
for Republicans to go after Biden for. So, you know, now you have it on uh, Tucker Carlson and it's on The Five and it's on Steve Bannon's podcast and all this stuff. But what it is, and it's also the sort of the, the Greenwald left, the yeah. sort of the Assange Greenwald left right, is, exactly. is also heavy into it. Yeah. So just to, to get our listeners up to speed, what it is basically is that um, there was this post that first emerged on Gab, you know, kind of a, a right wing, what a quote unquote, less censored kind of platform um, that showed maps of the Russian airstrikes compared to maps, kind of quote unquote, of bio labs funded by the United States in Ukraine. That's what these images showed side by side. And apparently that post didn't really go anywhere on Gab, but then a QAnon Twitter account shared it and it kind of took off from there. And there's been some criticism of Twitter being slow to kind of yank it down. And then from there into into the usual, you know, tributaries, it goes to TikTok, it goes to YouTube. It goes to Reddit. Um, it gets to Steve Bannon and Glenn Greenwald, and it gets to Fox. Um, so, you know, the idea is that Putin is not really invading an innocent Ukraine. He's just going to destroy these bio labs where the Ukraine, in conjunction with the United States, are developing bioweapons. In some tellings of the story, Trump is somehow helping Putin in this endeavor. In other tellings, Trump was actually tipping us off in code to this attack months before through some, I read the article like eight times, I can't understand it, but through some like convoluted way of how he pronounces China weird, he was actually referring to a Ukrainian town. Okay, so there's that. And then in most tellings, Fauci is the one who's using these bio labs in Ukraine to cook up a sequel to the COVID. The new virus. COVID. Yeah. So how, how, okay, so two questions I have here. The first is, obviously, Russia, as you know, as we know, there's a deep uh, convergence connection between uh, Russian disinformation campaigns and American Western conspiracy mm -hmm. theory world. But Russia has been making this point. This has been part of their, um, you know, uh, public diplomacy, for lack of a better word, for the last 10 days or so. Mm -hmm. So first, I want to have a sense of, I assumed this started with Russia making these claims, and then it kind of twirled into the American far right sphere. And then secondly, what is the actual story? My, my, my understanding is this is part of kind of like, you know, Soviet era stuff that, that we've been working on decommissioning for ages and whatever, but who's like, who started it? And then, <laughs> and then that's a, and then B what's the actual story as near as, as near as we can understand it. So Russia definitely planted the seeds of this. And this is something that they've been doing like even before this invasion. It's kind of an, an old tactic to, you know, say the enemy is kind of developing some dangerous weapons, blah, blah, blah. And that's the cover. But the seeds were not kind of exactly the way that it blossomed in the kind of QAnon circles. It was more just kind of either, you know, they're developing weapons or they have nukes or something along those lines, they, like something bad in the country, which is the cover for the invasion. And then it kind of got into the QAnon bloodstream where there's already a very flourishing market for the bioweapons discourse because a huge chunk of them think that COVID was a bioweapon developed in a US-funded Chinese lab. So that kind of just mutated into this as a, another offshoot of that. And then, you know, Russian and Chinese government and media organs were thrilled 
to get to kind of be like, okay, that's that's what you guys come up with. Let's push that through all our channels and add nuance. So it and- has it has sort of played off each other. It's exactly. not because I, I wasn't really sure because I thought that just looking from a distance, I thought that you know Russian state media, you know, kind of uh, uh, spokespeople for Vladimir Putin, whatever, were basically saying like, oh, there's these there's these you know kind of bio labs, and we think uh, Ukraine was was trying to make uh, biological weapons and US was helping. So what about it? So even that had some sort of was kind of, you know, the third sort of back and forth between interesting. interesting. That's my understanding of it. And then as to what's really happening, I think in some ways, it's like a bit of a a confusion of multiple things. Because I think a little bit what's happening on one level is just people's lasting ideas about what we know when, you know, the Soviet Union fell, and then we had you know, nuclear weapons left kind of to nascent governments that didn't know how to handle or store them. So you had, you know, the United States and to some degree global involvement in that. So I think that's coloring it a little bit. But then it's focused in on these labs where there are, you know, US and Ukraine side by side researchers working on diseases and, um, you know, studying them and, and how to fight them and everything like that. But There are no labs in Ukraine that reach the level, the international standard. Like the level four or whatever that was. Yeah, exactly. Level four that we use for if you're working on the most deadly, dangerous diseases. Um, But really the, the piece of this that kind of finished its progression into, you know, Fox News and more what we would call kind of quote unquote mainstream Republican media these days is that Victoria Newland, um, she was... She's in the State Department and she was testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Marco Rubio asked her, so are there bioweapons in Ukraine? And she said, there are biological research labs and we're worried about Russia getting their hands on them, basically. And to Tucker Carlson, to Alex Jones, to Glenn Greenwald, this was a kind of jaw-dropping, full-throated admission of guilt. Because why would she be worried about that? Why would the administration be worried about that if they weren't worried about Russia getting their hands on some big deadly weapons? So that was kind of like the quote-unquote proof that brought this fully into the Republican mainstream. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, because it's it's funny. Early in my journalistic career, I, I... I didn't actually write about it. I edited several articles in in the job I had at the time. And one of the things that I learned a little bit about this, as you do when you edit someone else's work, is that, you know, there's no shortage of Soviet era biological weapons research. And there wasn't on the US side either, but there was more on the Russian side. And there was actually a lot of, it wasn't just in the aftermath of the Cold War, it wasn't just, you know, new smaller countries kind of having nuclear weapons on their territory and maybe not knowing how to handle them. There was this much broader issue that Russia was in a kind of economic and state collapse and, and you know, metaphorically and maybe in some cases literally the sort of the nuclear and biological stuff just kind of laying around, right? And the people who were in charge of like safeguarding it weren't getting paid. So there was this whole move to kind of let's everybody get together and just make sure that like crazy people don't get this stuff, right? So, so it, you know, the point is, it's not like they need to kind of like, oh, let's go to Ukraine and get the really bad diseases and launch them into the United States. They've they've they they got that covered. But yeah, it is it is it's it's. <laughs> I never know 
you know, how far do you go down in these in these rabbit holes? But this idea kind of like that you really see from again, sort of like the green walled left, like, oh, why 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 don't we have any answers about these US biolabs in Ukraine? And and again, <laughs> the the US is capable of lots of bad things it has done in its past, and I'm sure will do it in various points in its future, that you know, uh, governments are governments. But we are going to Ukraine to develop the the mass death biological weapons? I mean, like, like what are people thinking, right? <laughs> Does this make any sense? Does this, you know, and, and uh, a lot of people just have bad motives. Yeah. And I mean, one of the most interesting things about it to me, because I kind of heard about this conspiracy theory like a week before it broke into really any- Made it to Broadway. Yeah, exactly. Because um, just someone that we know kind of started talking about it. At that point, the idea was that it was developing airborne rabies, but it was, I mean, same deal, right? And I, I was just, I'm so struck by it every time this new stuff comes out because it's like, you know, the United States has a lot of corruption in plain view, a lot of kind of bad faith acting in plain view. You don't need to go digging for these like eight levels of, you know, kind of James Bondian conspiracies. Like there's bad stuff that's much more on the surface, you know, <laughs> like just little things like kind of you know, the sinking of Sarah Bloom Raskin's nomination to the Fed because she believes in climate change. And it was sunk by Manchin, who takes more money from fossil fuels than any other senator. Like there's bad stuff right up there. You don't need to use your imagination this much. There's other stuff that's hurting normal people that isn't were for some reason colluding over in Ukraine to develop bioweapons, you know? Um, right, right. Well, it is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether there will be, I don't know if we, we would be able to do it, but, you know, after the fact, if we get past this fact, to, to I would be very interested to see a kind of a detailed genealogy of where this starts from. And as you were saying, the interaction between what starts as, you know, kind of Russian propaganda, what gets, you know, gets picked up and catalyzed in the uh, American or Anglophone conspiracy theory far right and how they interacted. Because, you know, there was, I don't know if it was your piece or one of our colleagues pieces, but this thing that, that again, official Russian state media, and I think the Russian government was saying for a few days, that there was idea that they were going to develop these, these um, you know, bacterial agents and send them via birds. Mm-hmm into Russia. I mean, you know, it's I think we I think we have all learned in the last 2 years that uh the biological world is pretty scary and a lot of kind of wild things can happen and in fact birds are a vector and what uh epidemiologists call a reservoir of many of the flus and and respiratory viruses that can infect humans, but they are not a good delivery weapon. <laughs> I mean, that is so absurd that, I mean, that, that, or what was also the, or the wind was going to do it. Like, you know, you're kind of, I expect better propaganda. I mean, this stuff right. is like absurd, right? It's really absurd. Um, and yet here we are. I mean, not to mention like, what is Ukraine's motive for unleashing some super deadly communicative disease into the people who are invading their country? Like that feels like that would blow back fairly quickly, you know? But yeah, no, you're right. And I mean, and then the thing that I was kind of interested in with this is also that Fauci is the primary antagonist. You know, he's the one who's actually cooking up the new illness. And it's just funny because then I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how you got to get some new characters. Like at some point, every single new conspiracy theory 
features the same usually kind of aging Democratic politicians. You know, Hillary Clinton is involved in every single one in some way or another. And it's funny because then I went into the Fauci kind of rabbit hole. There was stuff I've never even heard of. Like there's one conspiracy theory that uh, Fauci was the original CEO of Moderna, which was founded by George Soros, which was financed by Jeffrey Epstein. Like it's just like there are more people than just the same five that you keep using, you know? <laughs> well, one thing that we will have to look forward to if uh, Republicans take one or both houses of Congress, and it really, it almost doesn't matter for these purposes since the House is enough and the House is where things get like more feral in terms of investigations regardless. Mm -hmm. um, even if Republicans uh, control both chambers uh, in uh, 2023, that we're going to see big time investigations into Anthony Fauci, obviously, oh, totally. right? Yep. And, and a bunch of other things, but that's going to be one of the big things. And as you say, there's, there's, I, I'm sure most of our listeners, I mean, I think most of our listeners know that everybody's mad at Tony Fauci for making everybody wear a mask and all this, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's a really wild world of stuff that you don't have to be uh, a sort of an influencer on Gab or a kind of a made man in the QAnon mafia. This stuff is 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 pushed by by you know what counts as mainstream Republicans nowadays. That you know Fauci, you know was the funder of the lab that that created COVID in China and covered it up, and he's he is in that world, a kind of a James Bond villain character who has uh, funded scary and dangerous biological research all over the world and uh, wasn't just sloppy and we got COVID, but in fact, doing it to uh, take away your liberty and uh, create diseases so you can't go to, the, to your local sports bar on behalf of Hillary and George Soros. Exactly. And that's, 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 we're going to see those investigations. Um, if, you know, this is, you know, kind of uh, small favors, but we will have that entertainment to look forward to in the, in the, uh, the, the negative scenario of a big Republican win. Right. Uh, in November. And I mean, the thing is, you have, even by kind of QAnon standards, this conspiracy theory is weak and doesn't really make any kind of logical sense, but it's enough to kind of cast the pal of general suspicion. And now you have the Janine Piros of the world kind of, she went on her show last week on The Five and said, you know, where is Fauci? Where's he been? He hasn't been on TV. I'd like to ask him about this. And it was kind of funny because Geraldo was like, oh my God, can you give it a rest with Fauci already? And she was like, no, where is he? Why isn't he on like, TV? Like to answer for the Ukraine bioweapons? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The kind of like, yeah. we just want to ask him some questions stuff. But that has also become a familiar play in this playbook, you know, with when they ran out of Hunter Biden stuff to talk about, then it became, well, where is he? Why is he hiding? If he's innocent, why is he hiding from us? You know, that's kind of the natural filler between the next quote unquote bombshell. Right. Yeah, dark times. Yep. So to uh, finish with something equally dark, but unrelated to Ukraine, um, something I've been looking into that our listeners may have picked up on is that there's a burgeoning move from state legislatures, which is where a lot of this stuff starts, to introduce these kind of culture war-ish bills, but to try to extend them 
past the jurisdiction of the state. So in, in particular. Oh, can I, can I say, and I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm totally digressing, but, but you made me think of this and I want to flag it, yeah. you know, with regards to our, our last segment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. In this, in, in Putin's speech today, he was really going into the American inflected culture war stuff with respect to Russia. And it was just a very interesting case where as he has become more embattled, he more and more, there's more and more of this confluence between kind of what we think of as in, in the US as kind of culture war stuff and and Putin invoking those in Russia, both domestically and also as a sort of an international thing. In any case, I totally interrupted the train of thought. We're talking about state legislatures, but I just wanted to, you made me think of it. And it's, everybody should keep an eye on that because it is a, it's part of a much broader, much broader thing. Right. So the culture war kind of frontier that uh, I'm working on a piece on is basically, you know, so there's this bill in Missouri that in the model of SB8, which is the Texas abortion law that deputizes individuals to sue anyone who, quote, aids and abets a woman in getting an abortion. But this Missouri bill would go one step further and would let individuals sue people who aid and abet an abortion out of the state. So if people try to leave Missouri to get an abortion elsewhere, they would still, under this bill, be potentially liable. And that kind of happened. And around the same time, there's a bill in Idaho that makes it a felony to move your family out of the state to get gender affirming care for a trans child. Um, So the thing about this is like when you first hear it, you're kind of at least my initial impression was, okay, well, no way that's legal, right? You can't use your laws to say this is what you can and can't do in another state. But it's funny because I talked to experts about it and they all pretty much said the same thing, which was, yeah, probably unconstitutional. Yeah, probably doesn't matter. Yeah, well, that's the thing. As long as I was going to say that because the Supreme, with that Texas law, and I know you know this and probably most of our listeners do, you're kind of in this space of you do things that, I mean, it's not even like some of this is not even a matter of constitutionality that we don't do this bounty hunter thing. Like it, the, That's just not how we make laws. We can make things illegal. We don't allow them to be legal and say, you know, you, you set up as a bounty hunter finding women who've had a port, you know, it's, it's, but as you say, kind of like the Supreme Court seems to be saying, you know, do whatever you want. Right. I think they're letting the Texas law stand was so shocking to people and so obvious in its potential ramifications because it's just a blueprint for evading judicial review. So, I mean, you can use it for anything. Um, and the thing that's so I think scariest about this Supreme Court is while I was having these conversations with people, I was like, the thing that I still fundamentally don't understand is the court knew it had Dobbs coming down the line, which is the Mississippi abortion ban um, on at 15 weeks. They knew they had a straightforward challenge to our right to abortion. Why in the world then would you uphold this Texas law, which has such obvious potential ramifications for like the very way laws in our country function. When you have, you know, you've got your bite at the abortion apple coming just a few months down the line. And, you know, everyone told me they thought going into the Texas case that they would slap down the law, you know, even and get themselves the kind of patina of look, we're, we're fair, you know, we're not just ideologues. You get that on the side as well. And then wait for Dobbs and say, 
this is not a constitutionally protected right, overturn Roe, whatever. But they were like, that just kind of shows how divorced this court is from any sense beyond precedent, but any even sense of responsibility. This idea that they had a chance to make abortion harder for people just a few months before they would get their chance to probably come this summer, get rid of the right for everyone. And they couldn't resist. They still took it, even though it opens up the door to such obvious issues, including that there's nothing to stop blue states from taking the scheme and using it with guns or something, an issue they like. Except for the Supreme Court just saying, no, you can't do that because. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's just that is something that even though I've been writing about the court a lot lately, it's still almost hard to wrap your mind totally around that we've reached or are reaching a point where all this talk about concern about the legitimacy of the institution as being the thing that holds them back, if if they don't have that concern, it doesn't apply. And they've got these jobs for life. You know, I think it's kind of similar to what a lot of us experienced when Trump became president. And you realized for the first time how much of our government rests on norms and kind of ideas of honor and ideas of that people will try to do the right thing. And yeah, then it's just there's certain things you don't do. And like you don't yeah. do them because you don't do them. Right. Not because there's some sort of scorekeeper out there who's going to call a flag on you. With the Texas case, am I not right that they could have dispatched that case without even addressing abortion itself? Exactly. Yeah. Just on the kind of privateering private justice stuff. No, you can't evade judicial review type thing. Yeah. Right, right, right. So it's not even like they were kind of caught out where they didn't want to like, reaff- you know, do a little light reaffirming of Roe or something like that. They could have just exactly. said, no, this doesn't cut it. And the thing that was that's been interesting in kind of these abortion oral arguments we've had recently is Kavanaugh in particular has made this point, you know, shouldn't we be neutral on this? Shouldn't as if not enforcing a constitutional right is neutrality, but saying, you know, this is up to the states. The states can do it. And well, now you've got red states saying we're not content with shutting down these rights in our state. We want to shut them down in every state. So, I mean, it just goes to the point that this was never about states' rights. This was never about federalism. For a, for people in the anti-abortion camp, this has been a decades-long crusade to make abortions impossible to get in the United States. And now they've got a court who, by all appearances, are going to be their allies in that effort. So, I mean, this is... We're, this is like the taste of what the new frontier is going to be. Um, this kind of attempting to police behavior cross state lines. And it's it just, it's kind of wild to see the seeds being planted. Well, I would, I would think too, in some of these cases, it's not just that they are indifferent to the precedents they're setting. And I guess technically that's the whole thing with this, this you know, shadow docket or whatever. They're mm-hmm. not like technically precedents or whatever. You know, if if there's with this law that I think has not been passed, just been, I guess, proposed in Idaho that like, you know, it's, as you said, a felony to leave the state to get, you know, care for your trans child or something like that. I suspect the, to the extent that a law like this might pass and that it might come up, you know, and they might kind of let it go or something like that. It's not even that they don't care about the president. They're just trying to kind of make trouble in a way. Like you might have this kind of weird legal situation in Idaho. Like how is it going to be adjudicated and stuff? Well, like let them figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is there is a kind of just burn it all down mentality. and And it is one of the very sad and kind of comic aspects of the last decade or so, where like John Roberts is the (laughs) voice of like responsible jurisprudence and stuff. Whereas 
all he has really done, and whether this is about, you know, just about his legacy or some kind of, you know, threshold level of responsibility or something like that, that he has remained extremely conservative, but has tried generally to stay in the lane of we are going to have a coherent, rational jurisprudential process. I mean, probably that's even a bit generous considering a lot of the things that he is that he has done. But we're not going to like with the Obamacare stuff, we're not going to take up something like facially absurd just because Republicans don't like Obamacare. We're not going to go that level. And again, it's not, I think it's been clear to everyone to, to a certain extent, it's sort of an easy get. He has overseen as as the as the Chief Justice a a win on like almost everything the sort of the thirty or forty year uh, right wing judicial project has wanted, and he at least wants to kind of put a, a shine on it, legitimacy, kind of coherence, whatever. Since he's the boss, and why not? You kind of have your cake and eat it too. And sure, you don't like you know. You don't get the added bonus of like depriving 20 million people of their health insurance, but you know, you know, tough price to pay. You gotta, yeah. you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, uh, you gotta do some sacrifices. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, one other thing we want to end up on, and you will have seen this if you are a visitor to the website, we have a membership drive. It is super important. We do it once a year, a sign up for new members. We actually haven't done it for the last two years because of the, because of the global pandemic and, and, and everybody dying and wearing masks and living in a uh, dystopic, uh, future hellscape. So we figured, you know, kind of let's give people a little breather. On, on, on becoming members of TPM, but it's really important. This podcast, everything we do at TPM, over 80% of our funding, where we get our money, where we pay salaries, where we do everything, comes from membership fees. And there are a, a few over 33,000 members, and we need a chunk more of our regular readers to become members. And it's really cheap. You can get a basic membership for just $5.99 a month. Uh, you know, uh, about the price of a, of a pricey cup of coffee. It's really easy to do. You just go to our website, talkingpointsmemo.com. There's a little join button up in the upper right-hand corner. So just uh, give that a try. Um, uh, you know, you make you make everything that we do possible. If you're a listener to this podcast, but you're not a member, come by the site. We got a lot of good stuff there too and become a member of TPM's Prime, there's uh, AF, there's Inside, a bunch of different things. That is our big thing this week. So please give it some thought if you're not already a member. And remember that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And that's all okay. we got. See you Later. next week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.